This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to After the Buzzer. When I invited my two guests to the podcast, I told them I was going to bill them as James Carville, Mary Maitland, Kellyanne Conway, or George Conway, or even Bill and Hillary Clinton as Debbie Spander and Mark Eisenberg are a husband and wife combination that are well-known and successful successful sports world duo. Although unlike the previously mentioned, this couple actually gets along and are really not that opposite on opinions. Debbie Spander, as I said, is a well-known sports lawyer and agent and recently launched her own agency, Insight Sports Advisors, a Los Angeles-based agency that focuses on representing broadcasters, coaches, and college athlete personalities for NIL. Prior to starting Insight, Debbie worked at Wasserman for nine years, where she was Senior Vice President, Broadcasting and Coaching. Debbie has worked at MTV Enterprise Entertainment, Fox Sports, and v- Viacom, and A-Game. She's an active attorney, and we have served together on Sports Lawyers Association Board for close to a decade. Debbie is a Stanford graduate and a UCLA law alum. I'm not sure if I met Mark Eisenberg through Debbie, or our path cross as we shared an interest in college athletics and advocating for athletes and calling for reform in the structure of amateur athletics. Mark worked for Playback Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Mark has has written and spoken extensively on NCAA injustices, such as National Letter of Intent, the Transfer Rule, the No Agent Rule, and now NIL. He serves as an expert witness and consultant for high-profile NCA-related issues, an author whose book, Money Player, A Guide to Success, Business, and Life for Current and Future Athletes, is widely regarded as a go-to source for financial education and is used in many business classes at several universities. He's working on a book on name, image, and likeness. A college hockey and Emory graduate, I'm happy to welcome both Mark and Debbie to After the Buzzer. Welcome, guys. Thank you for taking the time to, to join us and hopefully have an interesting conversation on NIL and, and other issues of college athletics. Oh, um, we're going to so have a very start. interesting conversation, a lot of ground to cover. Thank you so much for having us both. We've done plenty of podcasts. I think this is the first one that we've actually done together. Uh, one quick note, I guess it was probably my fault. I gave you an outdated uh bio because i've actually been with ubs for the last year uh so okay. i just want to make sure that uh that that's you know duly noted and i feel like it thankfully you hedged it by saying that unlike the other couples that you had mentioned that we mostly get along otherwise we would have spent the next half hour probably um arguing with you <laughs> well that, that sometimes makes for interesting podcasts when there's a difference of opinion and i and i think we will although you and I, Mark, have had a number of conversations about uh, issues in college athletics, and we're usually on the reform side. Uh, so maybe Debbie can be the more traditional uh, one. Uh, uh, tell me sorry. a little bit about I'm more, I'm more on the reform side, too, but that's okay. Okay. Tell me a little bit about your background, Debbie. I, I just did it briefly. Tell me how you got into this business, how you started, 
you know, what made you do this, uh, become a sports lawyer? So I got into the sports industry through my dad, Art Spander, who is a longtime sports writer out of the San Francisco Bay Area. I think he's been writing for over 60 years. And uh, he started bringing me to sports events when I was like two, three years old. And I just thought they were fun to go to and, and be around. And I just started a lifelong infatuation with sports. And um, my senior year of high school, I was actually um, accepted to a program at UC Berkeley to take advanced calculus, which I had zero interest in. And instead, I enrolled in Harry Edwards' class, The Sociology of the Black Athlete in Modern Society. And that, you know, I'd been going to events for 16 years at that point, and that just opened my eyes to kind of the underbelly of sports and, and what's really going on that you don't see when you're at the games. And when I was at Stanford, I was a sports writer at the Stanford Daily and broadcaster for KZSU, but I really wanted to get into the business of sports. So I saw the route for that through law school. I uh, worked for a year at Steinberg and Morad's Berkeley office when it was still open. And that made me even more interested in going into the business side of sports, not media but I did not want to be an agent because I did not want to hold hands. So I figured I'd go to law school and figure it out as I went along. And um, the, the NFLPA recertified while I was in law school after the, I believe it was the Smith decision. And there were all, all of a sudden all these group licensing opportunities for football players. So I got involved in a startup company and started working there and just that led me to Fox Sports as a lawyer and uh, Arn Tellum came coming about 10 years ago for me to flip sides and become an agent for retired athletes in the media and in coaching. So that's where I am today. So from a hesitation on becoming an agent to now becoming an agent, what made that flip happen? Um, two things. One, I don't represent any active players. So most of my clients are more mature and I'm freed from the babysitting side of things. And I'm not really fighting with a lot of other agents over the same clients as in the NFL and NBA. There, there's obviously some of it and there's some client stealing, but it's it's not as prevalent with retired athletes. And the other was Arn Tellum convincing me that this you know, would be a great next career step. So tell me a little bit about representing coaches and broadcasters. Now, are you representing coaches that are in, going into broadcasting, or are you representing coaches as coaches for teams and stuff? No, I'm representing coaches as coaches, uh, both in the NBA and NCAA basketball. And um, it's great. I love helping people advance their careers and reach their goals. And sometimes I got into it because Brian Scalabrini, who was one of my first clients on the media side, went into becoming an NBA coach. And then after a year, went back to broadcasting, but that kind of opened my eyes to the coaching world and how negotiating those deals isn't so different from negotiating media deals other than having to negotiate your exit on the way in. And, um, he started referring me to some of his colleagues in the business, and it grew from there. So I, you mentioned that your, your dad, is a, whoever, if you're a sports fan, you know who Art Spander is, and you've probably read many of his columns over the years. Uh, and he used to take you to a lot of games. I now see that you're, you take your young daughter to many games, too. Is she going to have the passion for sports, do you think? We'll see. She, she, she keeps saying as she gets older that she doesn't like sports as much of us. 
although she loves basketball, especially UCLA basketball and the Warriors, but she just agreed to go over to a friend's house to watch the Ohio State Notre Dame game. So maybe it's growing on her. I'm going to ask you a little bit about the Pac-10 and UCLA basketball. I tell you, I watch UCLA basketball only when Bill Walton's doing the game. I just love listening to Bill Walton. Uh, he's not for everybody, but he's, he's right. his humor fits me. Uh, Mark, how about you? Tell me a little bit about your work and, and how you have gotten got started in the business. All right. Where do I start? I was a Division III uh, basketball player. I love sports. I think as I got closer to it and had some friends that were much better than I was uh, playing at higher levels, uh, I sort of through them started to, uh, my trip inside the sausage factory of college sports. And I had actually moved out here in 1994. That was actually the year. We're going to talk a lot about UCLA today, apparently, <laughs> uh, that UCLA had their magical run. And I was always just fascinated by the idea that College athletes are amateurs. They play for the love of the game, not for compensation. But yet for that one year, when they won the championship in 95, they were, you know, I mean, on the level of the Lakers, Toby Bailey, Ed O'Bannon, Charles O'Bannon, uh, Tyus Edney. It was, you know, just one of those things where you have that aha moment of something's wrong with this system. Something is deeply uh, wrong with the idea that you play for the love of the game on that on one side on the labor side and then it's unabashed capitalism on the other and so I mean I used to have conversations with Ed O'Bannon uh, before he was most known for suing the NCAA and there was just you know a, an awareness of what was going on around them so I thought okay the solution to this is education that I mean it's almost like back to the Frederick Douglass line the greatest way to unfit a slave is to educate them so that if athletes and their families understood the world that they inhabit, they would be more informed. They'd be better able to advocate for themselves, make better decisions, hold schools and coaches accountable. And when I started, I started writing a book called The Student Athlete Survival Guide, and it was incredibly well received, but schools kind of had a hesitancy, like it was one of those situations where, yeah, we want to say we want educated athletes, but we don't want them too educated. And so then, you know, as I started looking at some of the uh, deeper issues impacting college sports, it really starts with uh, the national letter of intent. This might have been when Debbie and I were dating and we had this conversation and I would sort of go through it, you know, the litany of issues that I had with um, the national letter of intent. And I'm not a lawyer by, by training, but she sort of came back and said, wait a second, the National Letter of Intent is a contract of adhesion. What is a contract of adhesion? And then she went through and it was like when the terms are so one-sided um, that if it was ever put before a judge that it would um, invalidate it as an unenforceable contract. I should not be practicing law on any <laughs> podcast, so if I'm technically wrong, correct me. Um, and, it's, and it's take it or leave it. You can't negotiate the terms. Exactly. So I started getting involved in writing op-eds. Uh, that led to some uh, lawsuits and expert testimony at the California State Senate hearings, um, a couple times dealing with uh, providing full cost of attendance, which was just a code word for providing a very small stipend, um, the NCA no agent rule. And it was just, you know, one of those things where if you look at 
you know, how the NCA has been structured, this is what happens when there's no bargaining power, there's no recognition that athletes are employee, employees, and it's just, you know, back to what Debbie said, take it or leave it. And, you know, thankfully after the NCA's, you know, 100 plus years of never losing, um, you know, we had the Ovana case, we had Alston. So I've just always have been on the side of the athlete uh, same thing when it comes to, you know, when they transition to the next level, if you know, a few of them have the opportunity to play professional sports, what do we need to understand about agents, uh, personal finance, investing, and just, again, pulling this, uh, the curtains back on this industry so that they can at least hold other people accountable and hopefully take advantage of the opportunities and avoid dangers. So that was sort of like the 50,000 foot level. And certainly uh, throughout this podcast, we can you know, drill down into some of the, the more uh, relevant topics. But thank you so much for having us. So you, you sound a little like Don Quixote there. You're, tint, you're tilting up the, wind, the windmills uh, about college athletics and education and fairness. Uh, do you think that you're making an impact at all on that? Do you think we are getting more educated? You think times are changing so that the student athlete has a better opportunity to take advantage of what's going on? Not only you put me on the couch, I'm going to go back to a conversation that I had with one of my uh, basketball playing buddies after I graduated, uh, Rick Tellender. He's probably on my wall somewhere who wrote the 100-yard lie, uh, Heaven is a Playground. And when I started explaining what I was aiming to do, um, instead of saying Don Quixote, he's like, look, I, I think you come from a good place. I, you know, after having at that point, he was writing about these issues 20 plus years. He phrased it as "you're pissing in a hurricane." Uh, so, <laughs> I, I mean, I think certainly to an extent, um, the progress has been incredibly slow. On the other side, any athlete that wants to be educated, I've always felt like they became the captive audience, and it's probably not a way to scale it. But I, you know, write articles, I write books. And you know, hopefully there's a gravitational pull of people who want more information to engage around this and really put the principles of the first book that I wrote and then Money Players into practice. So I've done okay with it. I mean, obviously I would have liked to see some of the things that have happened in the last year happen 20 years ago, but um, you know, we'll get into NIL 1.0 and you know, where that stands. Yeah, I mean, the good news is we do now have NIL and all athletes who play college sports can make money. The issue is, are they educated about the deals and taxes and all of that? But again, we're in NIL 1.0, so it's it's a big step forward. Yeah, we are going to talk about NIL. It's funny, Debbie, my my wife, who's not in the sports business, she's but she follows it cl- closely from from years of being married to me, and now my son works for the Dolphins. Uh, and she always says, I worry whether these kids just think they're getting the money and they don't have to pay taxes on it. She's right. Uh, so I, She's right. right. I, I think that's one of the traps. So you, you've done a lot of contracts over your career. And I read the uh, NLRB case uh, when they were outlining whether student athletes were employees. And I reached the conclusion that the judge reached. They're employees. Uh, yes. They, you know, uh, at least under the definition of what an employee is. Do you agree with that or? No, I do. I mean, especially under these kind of new labor enforcement where I think it's, you know, 25 to 30 hours a week, 30 weeks a year, you're an employee. I mean, 
most athletes on, on you know division one teams at least and probably division two are putting in that much work so i mean i know in in other deals i do with networks they're very careful to limit how many days you're allowed to work how many hours you're allowed to work if you're not an employee so that you don't become an employee and they all of a sudden have to pay you benefit so judged on on that basis i would say great majority of college athletes are employees Mark, Mark, it seems to me that the college athletics uh, and pro athletics seem very similar, but for one fact, the talent, which is the major expense in professional athletes, don't get paid in college. How can you explain that? Well, I I will go back. I feel Mm -hmm. like that that the whole terminology of student athlete, uh, you know, that was crafted by uh, Walter Byers, the first I think executive director of the NCA starting in the 40s, um, that was the original lie that he told. And he told it over and over again. He told it, you know, he had his lawyers argue that in legal cases. He had that argued uh, with politicians. And then you had the thousand plus member institutions that it's like they drank the Kool-Aid. And it worked amazingly well every time they uh, were uh, they encountered a situation where a lawyer on behalf of a former athlete argued for, say, workman's comp. No, they're, you know, they're student athletes, not employees. Uh, and, you know, and so it just it was a lie that was told over and over again. What was I, the quote, Balzac? Uh, you know, uh, behind every great fortune is a great crime. And I think that that really is it. I tell people. Uh, like you hate, so people say like you hate amateurism. You just want athletes to make as much money <laughs> as possible. It's like no, no. I believe in amateurism. I played it. It's Division Three. Um, I would be okay if Division One remained amateur um, in um, in practice, but that would mean that the coaches were being paid um, on the level of say a university professor. Um, you know, we wouldn't have all these made-for-TV games, Big Monday, Super Tuesday. Uh, wacky Wednesday. I mean, so it's just insane um, that on the labor side um, that there were these artificial constraints. And then when it came to revenue, it was just like, how can we maximize the product value? Let's have, let's have, you know, Pac-12 Saturday nights. Also, um, Mark brought up the coaches' salaries. That's really what turned the Supreme Court in the Alston case. They mentioned multiple times if coaches are being paid $10 million, why aren't the athletes getting anything? Right. I mean, uh, if you look at the sort of trajectory of college athletics, everything has gone up. Uh, the cost of schools has gone up. The pay to athlete, to athletes, I mean, to excuse me, to coaches, to athletic directors, uh, television rights, ticket prices, other benefits that they provide to the boosters and stuff, they've gone up. The only thing that hasn't gone up, at least proportionally, I mean, obviously the cost of an education is more expensive than it was when I went to college, but it's not the same as going from a $100,000 coach to a $9 million coach. That percentage increase is twice as much. The other thing that drives me crazy is when I watch uh, college athletics, and I never forget being at a Final Four and talking to a friend of mine who's, team was in the final four and he said well we got into town on tuesday i said the game's not until saturday why did you guys get into town on tuesday and i said what happened to class 
And they said, well, we brought our tutors. And I always say, I spent, I learned more from being in the dorm or in a classroom talking to my uh, professors and my classmates than I did by, uh, you know, reading a book or having a tutor help me with making sure something else happened. So, uh, no, exactly. And that's, and, and I know you want to get into this, but that's a huge, huge impact of UCLA and USC joining the big. I mean, they're going to be on six, seven hour plane flights and then buses every single week of the season. I mean, these these athletes are not going to be in class at all. So and we can skip around. I, I, I kind of shared with Mark and Debbie what we were going to talk, but there's no order to it. And as we can tell, as we talk about these various things, they all kind of interlap over each other. Uh, so talk about, you know, the pact. 12 or I don't know what they may be the pack six by now uh, <laughs> and, and, what, and what impact uh, we're having with this change in the landscape of college athletics. What do you think that will mean? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a huge impact. I mean, number one, I grew up in the pack 10 now pack 12 to be pack 10 again. I mean, I went, I went to three pack 12 schools, Cal, Stanford and UCLA I love the Pac-12. When the when the news first came out, I was shocked and and upset. I'm still kind of upset because I hate to see the Pac-12 go away. And it's you know unless they bring in other schools or do an alliance with the Big 12, I don't know how many more years the Pac-12 has and how many more years the Rose Bowl has, which is really sad. It's its hundredth anniversary this year. Um, I mean. I understand why UCLA and USC made the move. The, the TV money and the guaranteed revenue in the Big Ten is, you know, just multiplied what it is in the Pac-12 for various reasons. One being the Pac-12 network not being very successful and, you know, games being Pac-12 after dark and starting at 730 in the West Coast, which is 1030 in the East Coast. And, you know, you just don't get as much for the sponsors and the commercial money. But it's going to have a big impact, not just on, you know, the schools and the athletic departments making the money and the football and the basketball teams get to play in better competition and get more eyeballs. But then you've got the, the non-revenue sports flying all over the country for every single game other than playing USC. And you may, you might have the end of the PAC 12 conference. So Mark, do you see that, you know, the Big Ten just signed this massive deal. Uh, it'll only be outstripped if it, at all by the SEC. Uh, are we looking at just two major conferences in college athletics and everybody else is by the wayside? So the quick answer is very possibly. The longer answer, and I guess this is, uh, you know, the overarching theme of lack of leadership, uh, the idea that they were so locked into the lie that athletes are amateurs and that we're not going to pay them. Um, and, that, and then the other one, I don't think we talk enough about it, or I guess on this podcast, we're going to delve into it. The idea that uh, the NCA structured its membership by institution, not by sport. And, you know, it, I mean, right now, what we're seeing is everything being driven 90% by football and maybe 10% by basketball. And, and so we're really getting some unfortunate outcomes. What I wish, and again, I mean, you know, this is sort of like fantasy 
um, in NCAA talk, you know, that, that we could have come up with a system that would have taken the schools that had the football and basketball programs, we could take men and women basketball, um, that, you know, have the highest commercial appeal and create their own super conferences and then just recognize that every other conference was uh, bound together by some kind of geographic uh, proximity and tradition. So just the idea of taking all the other sports, whether we're you know, going to talk about UCLA, gymnastics, baseball, softball, volleyball, uh, it just made so, so much sense that you could keep it regionalized. And now the idea of UCLA baseball traveling in January or February to Piscataway, New Jersey, um, I mean, it's just not um, going to be feasible because they don't have the opportunity to fund you know, private charters. Um, and again, maybe they, they're they going to step up and do that. But again, I think that the calculation that they made, that the, that, you know, those two schools made, uh, you know, that they were getting, I think, $33 million from the PAC-12 payout. And now they're going to come to, I think it's a hundred million or right, more, yeah. um, which is, you know, that that's a threefold increase. That's great. But from our side, from the argument that athletes deserve a piece, I feel like the athletes are coming for that money. Not necessarily 50% that they might get um, at the professional level, but, you know, professional light. Maybe, I mean, can we give them 25%? Yeah, I mean, I just read something uh, within the last couple of days that the, PAC, uh, the Big Ten athletes have said, we want some of this money. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Commissioner Warren said, uh, I'll listen to that. I don't know if I'll listen to that means we'll take you seriously, but uh, that seems to be the next fight on the horizon. Do you agree or, or not? Yeah, I feel like I'll listen to that mean can be sort of if we uh, are able to translate NCA speak into plain English, uh, no, until we meet you in court and, you know, uh, or there's some kind of federal legislation that uh, supersedes all of this. Well, but on the other hand, he comes from the NFL and he gets the power of national TV, which is why they wanted UCLA and USC to have two big name programs on the West Coast. And he also understands that the players were paid. So I don't know, maybe it's not so far fetched. It's going to take, I'd say it's going to take another 10 years, but you know, it's, it's, it's definitely being bandied about there on lots of social media and, and chats and podcasts. I know. I agree with that. I'm I'm not sure that having the use LA in the TV uh, print map really matters in terms of rights. I mean, the NFL was killing it in rights for years with no L.A. Uh, market. Uh, and they'll get a yeah. little bit more. But it's, it's not significant. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the Big Ten and the SEC are the big conferences, and they're always going to dominate television uh, revenue from the, from the networks. Uh, so you mentioned, you mentioned uh, national legislation, federal legislation, and I, and I guess I just read again today that uh, Senator Tuberville and Manchin are now sort of leading the way and coming up with federal legislation. Mark, have you heard anything about that? Yeah, well, just uh, I guess by, you know, like I've read through the letter, but I guess, you know, when I know that they direct the letter to Tuberville and Manchin, that I'm um, against it. You know, that they basically <laughs> behind the scenes to, you know, Booker and um, and Murphy, Murphy. Um, and I'm sure that they dismissed it out of hand and that these were the only two people left 
um, that, that, you know, have, would have an open mind to the NCA way of thinking. So, yeah. So, uh, so Senator Booker and I actually went to Stanford together and he was a tight end on the football team. So he gets it. He's, he's been through, you know, PAC 10 travel major program. And, and now he's actually trying to represent the athletes. One of the perks of being married to Debbie Spander <laughs> was we went to the reunion, uh, last fall and, uh, and so we see Corey and he's always very nice. And then we started the conversation and then there's always a line because people want to talk to, it wasn't us, it was Corey. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so he's like, oh, this is fascinating. And I think our pitch to him was the greatest type of federal legislation uh, when it comes to the NCA and NIL would be no legislation at all. That, that, that there are laws already that protect the consumer. Um, and that we don't need the um, you know outside intervention. The whole grift of the NCAA. I, I, I mean, maybe I, that was a strong word, but like the idea was that for a hundred plus years that the NCAA was a voluntary association um, that we can handle our own rules and legislation on our own without the benefit of outside legislation. And the one time that the NCAA couldn't control it, they go running to uh, the states and, fed and federal government for help. So I, I don't know. I felt like that uh, it, it should be a non-starter at all levels. And that would yeah, be Mark, sort of the idea of having something. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Finish up. Finish. All right. We have so much to say. But just the idea that we are in a place where, uh, you know, who, what side are you on? Are you on the side of the athletes? And can you see it through their lens or, you know, is there some greater good to, uh, you know, keeping these antiquated rules in place? And it just, you know, it seems to me that, um, you know, 95%, maybe I pull the wrong people, but just normal people, you know, recognize that you can't hold the line with amateurism and athletes as, you know, students, not employees. Yeah. You, you said earlier that if, Tupperville and Mansion of Fort, you're against it, and I would and I would agree with that. And uh, I might say that if uh, Justice Kavanaugh is for it, I'm against it. But his opinion in in uh, the Alston case was really right on point in terms of let's open up the can of worms. Uh, and and you know he basically took the position that I took earlier was we have a system based on the back of the labor, and the labor's not sharing in any of it. Uh, yeah. Let's. We sort of started to talk a little bit about uh, or that we were going to talk about the NIL. And Debbie, give us can you give us a, a five minute or shorter primer on what is NIL? What does it mean? How has it changed kind of the landscape in college athletics? So what it means is name, image and likeness or your personal rights, which every other American has. And, you know, if, if someone wanted to go make a Bob Wallace doll, they would have to license your likeness from you. We have a business opportunity right right here on the table. Continue. <laughs> right, I, I'm, I'm already a doll, but okay, never mind. <laughs> and but you could not do that if you were a college athlete until last July 1st, because the NCAA made you sign away all of your rights when you got to your institution as part of your scholarship or even just playing on the team. They owned all rights to your name, image, and likeness, and they made all the money off of you, and you made zero. And first through the O'Bannon case, which Mark mentioned, which started getting at least full cost of attendance, which was like a stipend on top of your scholarship, 
And now with the Alston case, which said it's illegal to ban college athletes from owning their name, image, and likeness, they now have the rights to go out in the marketplace and make money. They cannot um, go around their school's merchandise deals. So if it's with Nike, Adidas, whoever, they cannot do a side deal for that, but they can, you know, go do a car dealership deal, do a deal with Beats headphones, do a deal with, um, you know, any sort of national, local, regional sponsor. The only athletes who can't actually do deals, and this is becoming an issue in basketball, are international players because their visas prohibit it. So that's going to be the next the next issue. But so right now you see it in in college football, especially that tons of companies are rushing out to do deals with the stars of the teams like Caleb Williams at USC has like three or four huge deals. And then the schools are also bringing in companies which claim they're NIL experts, which is a little questionable because we're all still figuring this out. But then they're going out and doing group deals for the players and the players have to opt in on a non-exclusive basis. And then if if the company brings a deal for, say, all the quarterbacks or all the offensive linemen, then they'll get 85% of the deal and the licensing company or the, the marketing company keeps 15%. So all of a sudden, there's there's money. Athletes can make it. Athletes can keep it. So now it's kind of becoming an arms race between schools. And I'll let, I'll let Mark jump into the collectives, which are kind of a, a byproduct of NIL. Right. Before you, Mark, before we get into collectors a little bit. So, Debbie, you said that in the prior to NIL, the universities or the colleges uh, really controlled everything. Do they do they have basically the same control over student athlete name, image and likeness up until the point uh, where the, the athlete can go outside of their family of sponsors? Yeah. Um outside the family. So they still own all of the rights for television, radio, and new media, and they still own all the rights for their their shoe merchandise deals. So they can still do that without paying any sort of proceeds to the athletes, which means the new $100 million Big Ten deal is all for the Big Ten and not for any of the athletes, which of course is why they want to share in it. So it has to be outside companies that aren't that are not already sponsors of the school or the the sponsorship deals are done and then they can go out and do side deals. I get to tell, uh, give a George Carlin joke. I have as much power as the Pope, just not as many people believe it. Uh, and I, I just had that in my mind because I think that, you know, for the last hundred years, the NCA has effectively uh, quashed any uh, legitimate voice uh from the athletes, and there was never um, any situation where they could exercise the power that they really had within their governance structure. That the NCAA, uh, which is supposed to be about the athlete, has specifically said that college athletes are not members. And and so they really don't have any standing uh, within the organization. They gave them a vote. And I just remember um, you know, it was such a disproportionate representation that it almost doesn't matter other than the press releases that go out. I remember uh, testifying at a California State Senate hearing where they had a, a the chair of the Student Athlete Advisory 
committee, which is, you know, athletes that are supposed to be speaking for everybody else. And he was, you know, arguing against multi-year scholarships. He was arguing against full cost of attendance because of the fact that athletes, um, you know, I mean, would not uh, be in a situation where they, um, you know, would have the budgets. The schools wouldn't have the budgets and therefore uh, scholarships would be cut and, you know, I mean, teams would be abolished altogether. So, I mean, I think that it's, you know, just really having a, you know, way to think about this in terms of how do we grow the pie? And it's, it it's growing already. I mean, if you, you know, people go out and look at the types of deals that are being done for, especially for college football with the season kicking off for week one, there was week zero last week, but really week one, there, there are millions of dollars in deals going to some of the top athletes and sponsors are coming in and doing smaller deals, guaranteeing money to everybody on the women's volleyball team, everybody on the beach volleyball team. Um, you know, it might be $5,000 an athlete, but still that's definitely more than zero. And, you know, it's, I think it's just going to grow. The overall pie, as Mark said, is going to grow. So I, I, when, when I was looking at helping some people, actually sponsors, uh, more with some NIL deals and trying to figure out what was allowable. Uh, and nobody really knew it, Debbie, as you said, you know, all the all the companies that are experts, uh, how could they be an experts when they're really, this is just beginning and nobody has any experience to say, well, this is the way it has to be done. But the one constant that I heard all the time was it can't be pay for play. Uh, no, play for pay, excuse me. And, uh, but as I look at, collectibles to me that seems like the perfect example of uh pay for play if i'm university of ucla and i can get you know 10 big sponsors to do a collectible to play my athletes isn't that pay for play well that's what was so fascinating about the ncaa's version of nil 1.0 they told us two things one we don't want NIL to be used as an inducement for recruitment and to pay for play. And yet 90% of what we read in the media, the bigger type deals with football and basketball, uh, it literally comes back to, um, you know, the idea that it is very close to pay for play other than, you know, smart lawyers kind of constructing it so that it doesn't sound like pay for play so that the NCAA would sign off on it and it wouldn't jeopardize their eligibility. But you're right. It, it's, um, you know, it's very fuzzy. It's very fuzzy. Uh, but that's like, I mean, I go back to the idea that NIL 1.0, um, it sounds good, but then when you sort of see what it, it, it really is about, the NCAA took all the meat off the bones, um, the shoe deals, the, television rights agreements and other contracts with their best sponsors and said that stuff is off limits. And then everything else, the scraps you guys go hustle for. And that's so, so now, yeah, but now the, the fans and the graduates are getting together and forming these collectives and running them through charities, which in the long run may or may not be legal, but it's, it's definitely driving revenue for, for football or basketball. And then we'll see, you know what else? Who else is going to get some of the revenue? So, Debbie, you're 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 the ex, the definitional expert on this collectible. Kind of explain that to the audience a little bit. Collectible or collective? Co collect collective. Excuse me. 
Okay, just want to make sure. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. defer to Mark on this, but it's okay. it's basically it's basically a group of fans from a school who get together and raise money and guarantee it to players or get it to the players through charities. It's not necessarily a a sponsor. It's it's more of a. Um, it's a guarantee against future earnings uh, and or um, a way that we we as a collective, I'm not working per se with any collective, um, a, a mechanism to attract the best and brightest athletes. Which is why, why which is why there's a lot of shouting that it's actually pay for play because right. it's being used to recruit. And it's funny because USC um, alums just form one and the athletic department is very against it, but they can't stop them. Well, that one's a little you, bit different. That one you just said, though, Mark, you just said it's a bunch of fans that are getting together to pay, to, to give money to the athletes. Do they have to do anything for this money? Or they just have well, to go to school? See, that's where, again, I, I mean, you can't really even sort of put the NCA um, on the clock here because a lot of them are being set up as 501c3, the idea that they are going to, you know, do some type of charitable work, um, you know, get out in the community for causes that um, there's a connection to and sign autographs and get an appearance fee. So, I mean, they're, you know, we can talk about collectives, but it's not one size fits all that there's a lot of different interpretations of how these things are, are going down. So Debbie, you said that there are certain play, uh, players making, you know, millions, you know, Caleb Williams, the USC quarterback, I guess is probably, yes. you know, he's in a, he's in a major market and he's a quarterback of a team that has had a historical success. Uh, but overall, is there is there money to be made for the majority of, of athletes? There, there's a little money. I mean, and this is what I predicted. I don't I don't have the updated stats, but I know as of January, the average deal was like thirteen hundred and fifty dollars per athlete, and eighty percent of them were on social media. So there there's a little money for posting something for you know modeling a pair of jeans for showing up at a car dealership for you know, doing some autographs. So I think, you know, it's it's trickling down to the other sports and there's some sponsors in certain cities or companies in certain cities and and fans who want to make sure that the the women's sports are taken care of, that the non-revenue sports are taken care of. So I mean it's it it just depends. Does every athlete at USC have a deal? No. But you know, I think there's gonna be opportunities for the women's basketball team and the women's beach volleyball team because those are exciting sports and there's definitely companies who want to be aligned with the players. Well, there's the, the narrative that is being put out is that the women athletes and some of the non-revenue uh, sports are doing better than some of the revenue sports, football and basketball, for instance. No, there's some who are. I think the big thing is let's start from the beginning, which is that it was a fundamental right that was denied um, all athletes. And so now that they can engage in it, um, if, if there's not sort of the, uh, you know, the deep pocketed booster who wants to line the pockets of the revenue producing athletes, then we sort of get back to the original intent of NIL, which is, you know, how can they use their platform as a college athlete to engage in, um, you know, various forms of 
capitalism. And that's really where I think the volleyball players, the women in general, just are ahead of the game because they're very comfortable in front of a camera. Um, people aren't just handing them money. They're, they're, they're coming to the table and saying, how can we create a win-win partnership? And that, you know, that's the organic type of NIL deal that we all want. Um, you know, and so, I, you know, again, I think that it's for any athlete that wants to use it for, um, you know, commercial gain, for networking, for job opportunities, while they're in school, for future. You know, these were rights that were, you know, I mean, they were never afforded athletes. And when you think about all the time drains of, you know, being a college athlete, they couldn't do traditional internships. Well, now they're going straight to the CEOs and working directly on, you know, advertising campaigns to sell product. And, you know, so it's, real, it's amazing. On, on real estate funds. Yeah. I mean, there, there's some really interesting and, and high level deals happening. So what do you guys think uh, the effect of all this will be on college athletics uh, in the next few years? Is it going to continue to grow? Is it going to make uh, student athletes uh, decide that they can stay in school because they actually enjoy being on a college campus? Uh, yes. So that it's not going to be one and out or one and done. Is yes. it, it for some? So, yes. Can we, is so one of the answers here. all of the above? Yeah, give me your, give me your landscape of what effect the NIL will have on college athletics in the next five years. All right, so or one, year, or one year even. Yeah, no, no. Look, I think that in one year and five years we're still going to be complaining. Not that it's our nature, but I think that that the change is going to be incremental. Uh, you know, that I guess from my perspective, I would like to see full NIL rights. Uh, and I don't believe that the world of college athletics would spin off its access if college athletes could go out and sign their own shoe deals or if the schools uh, went directly to the athletes as part of their recruiting package and say, here's you know, what you get if you come to our school, including an opportunity to get a meaningful education, to, uh, you know, to hone your craft as an athlete. And there's nothing wrong with a little bit of money in your pocket. So I think it's going to be evolving. I think it's just the recognition that those schools, they can figure out how to partner with their athletes. And I think that there's, you know, some of that that's already taken place. I think one of the schools, the other USC, South Carolina, said that they are going to provide their collective almost in-house. It's an outside company, but the, the outside company is going to charge an agent fee of zero. And the other USC is giving them the rights to use the school marks and logos. So now you've got the athletes. Uh, that's one thing we forgot to mention before, that that when you do a deal, when an athlete does a deal with the sponsor, you cannot use the school marks and logos unless they give you the right. There's a few schools who have given blanket rights, like I believe ASU is one and now the other USC. So you've been able to wear the colors, but but South Carolina is not going to charge an agent fee, is going to give this outside company the rights to the, the marks and logos. And now you've got the athletes with their names and their images. So it's a great package. So then we go back to, just the, to the perverse system that they had before, where because college athletes were amateurs, I'm not like the, the broken record <laughs> part of it, you know, that you play for the love of the game, zero compensation. So instead, they put all their money in this athletic arms race, uh, better facilities, uh, first class travel, coaches that could jet around the country, uh, you know, in, in their own private jet, 
so now what's happening is you have college athletes who um, you know have market value. So these schools are competing by saying, here's what we can do. Maybe it's a wink wink. Maybe at some point it'll be memorialized as uh, you know, schools can do whatever they want. If they feel like that an athlete is worth X, they should be able to pay them X. Um, you know, again, it's it's getting close to a free market system. Um, and again, I don't think that in one year or five years that it will be where I want it to be. But I think that we're making some nice progress here. I mean, there's been a lot. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot yeah. of progress in 14 months. Yeah. Without and, question. And, and you, you say that it's part of the arms race now is what can now that NIL is just another quiver in the in this, uh, the sheath. What can we do to make more athletes come to this school? Well, we'll we'll do NIL for you. We'll make sure that you're you're taken care of as as an athlete here. Uh, yes, that, your locker room is great as opposed to you know. So all those things now, uh, again, doesn't go right to the root of the problem. Is that the, the, these young men and women aren't getting the value of their work? Uh, they're getting perks, which really uh, is not related to that individual. It's related to the. The, you know, the difference between being a professional is the name on the back of your jersey as opposed to an amateur, the name on the front of your jersey. Uh, we're coming to, to an end of this, but I, I think that we have to talk a little bit or, or I'd love to get your thoughts uh, on what just happened at BYU with the Duke volleyball player uh, and kind of your reaction when you heard that story. Uh, we were both horrified and um, unfortunately – cannot say we were surprised because things like this happen all the time. This one just happened, you know, the, the volleyball player luckily and her aunt spoke up. Um, I, neither of us are happy with the response. There's no way that that match should have gone on. Her teammates should have walked off her coaches. I mean, the fact that that both athletic directors have apologized and they're horrified after the fact Great, but you know, there's been high school coaches who've walked off when when similar things have happened, and it's very disturbing that the the match went on the entire match. Nobody said anything or did anything. Oh, do I think? You know, I mean, it's like I'm very fortunate because I've you know I'm from the North Shore of Chicago, uh, but thanks to basketball, put me in different environments that were you know definitely more diverse. Um, I had a friend mentor, Rick Rhodes, who sort of, you know, when I was in my 20s, reshifted my thinking where his line that he used to say, it's not enough to not be racist. You must actively fight racism. And that shift was kind of like, okay, you know, you can't just give yourself a pat on the back if you're not racist. It's for moments like that that you actually stand up. You know, if you have, um, you know, a, a platform where others you know, who have not had a seat at the table have been disenfranchised to, you know, say something. So it's kind of like two <laughs> plus years, George Floyd and, Brianna. you know, D DEI. I mean, it was like, so, you know, we, I mean, it seems to me that the biggest takeaway is that shit still happens. You know, there's a racist act that's committed and then they go into damage control in the press releases and the statements uh, but to me, you know, DEI training um, and just where we are as a country should be when it happens on the spot that we are aware of the situation, we hear something that's obviously racist um, and that we stop the shit 
at that moment and we address it. So it's just incredibly disappointing that it was heard. It wasn't like it was a football stadium filled with 80,000 people. I don't know what the attendance was, but you know, I've had some conversations close to the situation and it was clearly heard by both the BYU players, the Duke players, the Duke coaches, the benches, the benches. It was obvious. And I don't say a lot of nice things about Bobby Knight, but I always remember as a kid, there was a situation where the fans were being abusive to the refs at, at Bloomington. And he went directly to the PA, took the mic and said, cut this shit out. Um, and so it just, you know, seems to me that we were so equipped, allegedly, to step up in these kind of moments. And yet again, it's almost like, you know, I mean, rinse, repeat. Like, I mean, oh, it wasn't a student. We didn't have, they're not going to be able to come back. But like, it's on all it of us, I guess. Be, it that? needs to be addressed while it's happening or it's right. just going to be mimicked. And then the, the athletic director, um, I didn't, I, I don't know what uh, Nina King, who's a friend of ours, but the athletic Tom director, Homer. At BYU, former 49ers. Yeah, Oklahoma. I mean, he literally could only go as far as say refer to the unfortunate incident. He couldn't just call racism racism, and so that's very disappointing. So let me ask you a question, I, and, and I agree a hundred percent with what you guys are saying. Uh, have we heard any explanation for what, why they didn't do any of this? Uh, you know, why didn't the athletic director? No. BYU or Duke, why didn't the coaches, what were the officials doing? Have we heard an explanation for why nothing was done Why in real time? No. Well, there you go. That's, the, that's the, the question that, you know, I mean, needs to be put before them. And again, I hope that there's an investigation and it could be just, you know, journalists doing their job and, you know, putting people on the spot because we do you know, need answers. Um, I, I really sort of go back to, I think it was like 2014 or 15, uh, Marcus Smart, uh, they were playing, he was at Texas, he was at Oklahoma State, they were playing Texas Tech. And I don't know if you remember, but yes, it was remember. a play under the basket. And next thing you know, he pushed a Texas Tech fan. And I was like, oh, something really you know big happened. And then it was reported, and he, you know, after the game, had alleged that the fan had uh, used a racial slur. And, you know, so it was like, well, you wish that it didn't, you know, I mean, result in a physical confrontation, but I get it. Um, And so, you know, you think that they would do a a proper investigation. They would hear both sides, and Marcus Smart would be protected. And then three days later, he was suspended for three games. The— uh, athletic director, the conference commissioner, they all came out with statements basically saying that um, it was unfair. What was like the same thing? No, unacceptable for a, was, for a player to touch a fan. Exactly. Um, so again, I think through the 2022 lens, you know, we recognize that uh, you know that that, they, that these schools are sort of towing this line where they don't want to. Uh, go after their greatest supporters. And and that sucks um, because this was, a, you know, going back to Texas Tech, somebody who was sitting courtside and, you know, they didn't want to bite the hand that feeds them. So, you know, we Maybe, get... so they don't protect their athletes. And here we are. So I, 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 was, I was telling you earlier, Mark, that when I was, and I'm a kid of this, who grew up in the late 60s, early 70s. And my dad had one rule uh, or he didn't, it wasn't a rule, but he, 
the permission is if they use the N word on you, you can go fight them. Uh, that, was a, that was a simple. That was a simple rule we had, and you know there were many times where, you know, I, I remember a coach on the opposing team saying the N word to me, and I went after him. And the coaches on my side were saying, "Oh, you should have kept your control." And they went to my dad and said, "Boy, I wish he would have." My dad said, "Nope, I told him he could do it." <laughs> yeah, there was so the I my middle school the nickname of Edgewood Junior High was the Cagers. And so, you know, if you go back to the beginning of basketball, that they accounted for just how unruly the fans were, and you played in a cage. And that's how, so basketball players were called Cagers. Uh, maybe they were onto something. There's, you know, I mean, some things that, uh, you know, if you can't protect uh, the players, then we've got to figure out ways to, you know, keep them, you know, out of harm's way. I don't think that we need something as drastic as that, but it, um, you know, the history of abusive fans is, um, you know, I mean, very deep and very long. So for the past almost close to an hour, we've talked about the NCAA and some of the problems and what we see in the future and the NIL. What is the future of the NCAA in your minds? And as you're, as you're giving me your answer, think about, you know, Mark Emmett stepping down. What kind of leader or what kind of structure do we need so that we can go into the, you know, mid twenties? Uh, and I don't mean twenty twenty five. I mean twenty 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 fifty. Where with a system that actually works? You guys have any thoughts, Mark? You had some earlier, which I thought were pretty interesting. Oh, now you put the pressure on that I have to uh, <laughs> replicate it now that we're taping. Um, look, I think that you know the NCA does one thing amazingly well. They run championships. The NCAA, you know, men's and women's basketball tournament, the women's not so much, but I think that, um, you know, they, they know that they're on the clock, that they better get their act together. Baseball, softball. Right, right. Um, I think that there was always a mistake that we um, disempowered the NCAA president. We still paid him a buttload of money. He gets to travel around on a private jet, but he doesn't really have any power other than represents right right so I, I don't know i feel like that it would be better if sports could um you know have a commissioner that you know would be much more aligned with what's in the best interest of that sport because the sports are so different uh revenue producing sports men's women's um just making sure that you have true advocates um you know in the marketplace for both the sport i mean certainly you can make the argument that you know, Adam Silver represents the owner because he does, but at least um, as a counterweight, you have the Players Association. So I think that the NCAA historically has benefited from the fact that they've never had to take athletes' views and right. their rights, you know, in you know into account, and it became a terribly effective way to run um, a monopoly. And and so you know, I think that the next version of the NCAA. It's going to be somebody that can sit in a room and have the credibility on both sides. One, I see football breaking off and just running itself. It's We're very close to that already. I think with the next BCS or whatever they're going to call the championship when they increase the number of teams, the money is going to be in the billions and they're not going to need the NCAA. I mean, it's pretty much separate already. Football, D1 football is going to be out um, the NCAA needs to save basketball because that's its revenue. 
However, they've run the women's basketball tournament terribly. They give them no revenue. The men's, you know, gets hundreds of millions of dollars and the teams all get stipends depending on how far you go. And the women's tournament gets $3.9 million, period. Um, they're going to have to adjust that inequality because a lot of us are fighting for that. And I think they need to bring in, they traditionally have brought in a president of a university or an athletic director, former athletic director, as the head of the NCAA. I think they need to bring in someone from the business side of sports. I, I couldn't agree more with anything you guys have said over the past hour. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're not Mary Matlin and uh, James Carville. <laughs> uh, you're pleasant to talk to, although I love James Carville. Uh, and really have great insights on what's going on. So, uh, Debbie and Mark, I want to thank you very much for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I, I know Debbie is school is about to begin both as a mother and as a representative of athletes going into NIL. This is a very, very busy time uh, for you. So I appreciate you taking the hour. Mark, as always, it's great talking to you. Uh, we agree on more than we did than we disagree. And I really appreciate your thoughtfulness on the topic of amateur athletics. I actually had a good time for the last hour plus. So thank good, you for uh, thinking that we were worthy of uh, an hour on your podcast. Good. So to our listeners, I just I hope you enjoyed listening to, to Debbie and Mark and that you've enjoyed our other podcast. And if you have, let us know. You can provide your feedback by going to Apple's podcast and going to the ratings and review section for our podcast. If you're listening on Stitcher, go to Stitcher.com. And if there's a topic you would like to hear us discuss, let us know that, too. We thank you for listening. See you guys. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. That was fun.